1: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. This program is brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, Pure Light, these are the next generation of light bulb, and HSLAMO.com. And I'm glad you could join us today. If you're a new wrong thinker or new to the concept of wrong think, I still welcome you to the program. And maybe you're asking yourself, why, why do you even need to engage in wrong think? And that's a fair question. And my only answer is because we are living in a time where something as, uh, as unthinkable as uh, perhaps the formation of a reality police appears to be on the horizon. There are approved narratives, there are, uh, there's a, a, a sense of approved opinion, and then there's everything else. Well... As Tom Woods is so fond of saying, approved opinion, you can fit neatly on a little 3 by 5 index card. And as long as you stay on that card, yeah, you're going to be okay. You start questioning things that uh, are not on that approved opinion card, and you're going to have some problems. Well, I'm willing to take that chance. I want to see the world as it is. More importantly, I want to see the world as it is and understand how I can use whatever influence I have to influence the world in the right way. And I'm guessing the ch- the chances are pretty good that you're listening to this program because at some level you feel much the same way, even though you may have a totally different way of utilizing your influence. You have it, might as well put it to good use. So in interest of being better informed, That's what I have to share with you. Lots of great, uh, thought-provoking commentaries. You are under no obligation whatsoever to agree with or to believe anything that I share with you. I do provide links in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com, And I would encourage you, take a look at them. Look at the uh, supplementary material that's linked within the links. In other words, uh, most of the sources that I share with you are very, very good about uh, footnoting, documenting, citing. You know, this is where I got this information. And so with that in mind, the idea here is let's be as well-informed as we can. Let's have the best possible perspective. And if we don't agree on certain points, that's okay. But somebody needs to be thinking very clearly and independently right now because uh, these are pretty critical times. And the fact that there are those who would maintain, hey, there are things you cannot talk about. Social media, by the way, the big tech giants, Google, Twitter, uh, Facebook, etc., seem to be the ones most intent on enforcing you know, a particular line of thought. I'm under no such restrictions, so, you know, hang on to your hat. Here we go. One of the things I wanted to begin with today is an optimistic note. I see lockdowns are finally lifting, but at the same time, I notice that the fog of misinformation turns out to be a lot slower in dissipating. And there are a lot of different reasons behind that. But I saw an article from John Miltimore at the Foundation for Economic Education, which discusses how many Americans are widely, I'm sorry, wildly misinformed about the risk of hospitalization from COVID-19. This is according to a recent Gallup survey. Here's what John Miltimore has to say. He says a recent survey found that more than a third of Americans overestimate by as much as a factor of 10 the probability a person with COVID-19 will require hospitalization. Researchers involved in the Franklin Templeton Gallup study asked Americans back in December what percentage of people who have been infected by the coronavirus need to be hospitalized. Now, here's the interesting part. The correct answer is not precisely known, at least according to the authors. The best available estimates place that figure somewhere between 1% and 5%. But many people's perceptions of the data are completely off. Less than 1 in 5 adults, about 18%, gave a correct answer of between 1 and 5% of people with coronavirus needing hospitalization. In fact, many adults, 35% to be specific, say that at least half half of infected people need hospitalization. Now, if that were true, the millions of resulting patients would have overwhelmed hospitals throughout the pandemic. The authors of the study say the conclusion is clear. And that is, the U.S. public is deeply misinformed about the severity of the virus for the average infected person. So this raises the question, why are Americans so misinformed? And John Miltimore says one possibility is that Americans are receiving information that is skewing their sense of reality, and research confirms this hypothesis. He says studies have shown that U.S. media in particular created a climate of fear by publishing a deluge of negative news in 2020. Perhaps you remember. (laughs) One Ivy League-led study found 91% of U.S. stories in major media were negative in tone compared to just 54% in non-U.S. media. And that's even when the virus was in retreat and positive results were being achieved. So just as a quick aside... There is an organization, I will not name them, but there is an organization here in my home state of Utah, which for for decades, for generations, has been the respected name in news. It's the first place people turn when they want to know what's going on. And it's been very sad to see this once trusted news organization, I, I would say arguably the best of its kind in the state, Always pushing the panic porn, always pushing the fear porn. There, there is no story that they do on COVID or coronavirus that isn't spun in such a way as to remind you this is so deadly. You cannot let your guard down for a second. Wear your mask. Do what you're told. I mean, they're they mouthpieces for the uh, medical authoritarians, elected and unelected, who uh, would like to impose you know, their solutions. By the way, just, uh, you know, as a matter of, uh, of interest, you might notice if you were to compare, uh, I think I saw a tweet earlier today from Jeffrey Tucker comparing two cities where lockdowns are still, or I'm sorry, two states where lockdowns are very much in effect compared to two states where there is no lockdown whatsoever. Would you care to guess what the virus's progress is between these four states? And if your answer is, well, I would think it would be almost exactly the same. That's the point. Yes, it is. Even with the lockdowns, it does not affect the the trajectory of this virus, which I would hope would lead a thinking person to wonder, well, then why are we doing this? Why are we closing schools and restaurants and businesses, destroying people's lives and forcing people into despair? It's that climate of fear. Back to the article. Miltmore reports the negativity of U.S. major media is notable even in areas with positive scientific developments, including school reopenings and vaccine trials. That's according to these researchers that he's citing. Stories of increasing COVID-19 cases outnumber stories of decreasing cases by a factor of 5.5, even during periods when new cases are declining. Yeah, I can see where that would influence the way people see things. I can see how that would play on people's fears. John Miltimore says, as he noted when the study was released, a global pandemic isn't exactly a cheerful topic. But this fact alone doesn't explain the discrepancy between U.S. media coverage and non-U.S. media. And it doesn't explain why negative news trends continue even during positive developments like declines in cases, hospitalizations and deaths, as well as vaccine breakthroughs. The steady drumbeat of negativity was described as panic porn by some media critics. (laughs) My hand just went up. I'm one of them. HBO pundit Bill Maher said back in April, enough with the life will never be the same headlines. He said everything looks scary when you magnify it a thousand times. We need the news to calm down and treat us like adults. But that didn't happen. Months later, as the virus had receded and scientists concluded COVID was not as deadly as previously thought, John Miltimore reports the media were still engaging in panic porn, characterizing Florida's laissez-faire approach to the pandemic as a death march. Why media and public officials engaged in panic porn for months, he says, is a discussion for another day. But Miltimore says what's apparent is that the phenomenon severely skewed Americans' sense of reality as it relates to the actual dangers of COVID-19 a virus that does not require hospitalization for up to 99% of those infected. Unfortunately, authors of the the Franklin Templeton Gallup study say the disconnect has real-world consequences. The authors say those who overestimate risks to young people or hold an exaggerated sense of risk upon infection are more likely to favor closing schools, restaurants, and other businesses. Now, the harms of these lockdown policies are very well documented. Severe mental health deterioration, mass social unrest, health procedures deferred or foregone, soaring global poverty, increased suicide, extreme loneliness, and many others. In fact, the Foundation for Economic Education's Brad Palumbo recently testified before the U.S. Senate on some of these dangers, noting that doctors around the world warn lockdowns have resulted in an international epidemic of child suicide. No surprise, those were policies born of panic. Sean Malone from the Foundation for Economic Education says, when people feel fear, they're much more willing to accept anything that makes the world seem a little safer. I'm going to come back to this article just the other side of our break. But look, I'm just asking you to pose the question to yourself. Be willing, be daring to ask the question, is someone trying to make me fearful? Hopefully it's not me. (laughs) But if someone's trying to make you feel fear, it's a good rule of thumb to think about. uh, Maybe they're trying to hack your mind. Maybe they're trying to steer you in a predictable direction. Why would they want to do that? We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I've been sharing with you
1: an article from John Miltimore published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. That's fee.org. And if I could be so bold as to just offer a recommendation, sign up for their emails. I get emails every single day in my inbox, not to the point that they're spamming me, but they are definitely providing some some very needed insights, and perspectives on the world around us. And it's not all COVID. It's, it's on a lot of other issues, too. For some reason, when you start to cover things from an economic rather than simply a political point of view, you really do get to see more of the big picture, and you get to step away from a lot of the melodrama, which drives a lot of political discourse. So for what it's worth, sign up for it. I think you'll find it one of the greatest resources a wrong thinker can have. In John Miltimore's article about how Americans are widely... I'm sorry, wildly misinformed about the risk of hospitalization from COVID-19. He says for far too long, Americans were told they must sacrifice liberty by embracing lockdowns or risk mass fatalities. But this was always a false choice and a dangerous one. The reality is passing sweeping legislation during panics is a recipe for bad outcomes. But all too often, that's precisely what happens. In his work, Crisis and Leviathan, economist Robert Higgs observed that crises have been utilized to mount the greatest, or sorry, the biggest government power grabs in modern history. So think about this. For the Great Depression or during the Great Depression, the power grab took the form of the New Deal. Following the 9-11 attacks, it was the War on Terror and the Patriot Act and everything that came with them. In 2020, it was the lockdowns. Each of these historic encroachments was driven by mass panic. And in each instance, only in hindsight did it become apparent that the greater danger we faced was fear itself. Now, John Miltimore says this isn't to say that there aren't real threats in the world. The pandemic, terrorism, and the Great Depression, those were legitimate threats. It's only to say that we have to reject panic in our decision-making and those who would have us abandon freedom for the false promise of security. Again, there's a link to this in the in the show notes, and I would encourage you take a look at it for yourself. If you find that it uh, is informative and perhaps useful, feel free to share that truth and light with anybody else, you know, who is looking for a better understanding of what's going on. Now, this raises some other interesting questions. Look, there have been a lot of voices warning for generations that our liberties are under attack. I'm one of them, just one. But given the current increased effort to consolidate even more power in the hands of the systems that try to rule us, Judge Andrew Napolitano has some questions regarding who will keep our liberty safe. I love it when he does this. And it's, it's pretty much, his column is just questions. This is the Socratic method, okay, the idea of, we ask questions to get people questioning things and thinking, how would you answer these things? Judge Napolitano says, what if liberty and democracy are opposites? What if the principle underlying liberty is to restrain the government to maximize individual autonomy? What if the principle underlying democracy is to unleash the government to give the people whatever they want? That's a great distinction, by the way. What if personal liberty is an individual birthright because we are created in the image and likeness of God? What if just as God is perfectly free, we are perfectly free? What if our personal liberties are integral to our humanity— What if personal freedom, which we are free to abuse, is God's greatest gift after life itself? What if, without freedom, we would not be fully human but subservient to whomever or whatever took our freedoms away or persuaded us to surrender them? What if government is essentially the negation of liberty? What if some liberties should be negated? What if those liberties that should be negated consist of the liberty to violate the natural rights of others by taking their lives, liberties, and properties? What if government does this every day because it wants to tell us how to live? What if no one consented to a government that takes property and freedom from the people it governs? What if the right to worship or not, to think as you wish, say what you think, to publish what you say, to associate or not with whomever you choose, to defend yourself using the same means as the government and bad guys, to enjoy the right to privacy, to keep the government off your property and back and out of your face, to travel wherever and whenever, to engage in commercial intercourse on private property freely and without the need for government permission, are natural, personal rights that no government, whether by edict, legislation, or referendum, can morally dismiss or discard. What if democracy offers the government tools to take our personal liberty and private property? What if under a democracy the government grows and liberty shrinks? What if that's because the democratic government desperately wants to stay in power, and in order to do so, it takes wealth from some and gives it to others? And what if those from whom it takes wealth never consented to the takings? What if, in a democracy, the public treasury has turned into a public trough? What if, in a democracy, those in power find ways around laws intended to limit their power? What if the government is essentially the judge of its own powers? What if, no matter which party is in power, the government acts as if it can right any wrong, regulate any behavior, tax any event, and insinuate itself into any controversy, whether authorized by the Constitution or not? What if the Constitution is the supreme law of the land? What if it was written to establish the government and to limit it? What if its amendments expressly guarantee that the government shall not interfere with the exercise of natural rights? And what if the government does so anyway? What if the government's excuse is always emergency or safety? What if it promises during an emergency that it will bring safety in return for a surrender of liberty? What if the Ninth Amendment commands that the government may not deny or disparage natural rights no matter the emergency? What if this liberty for safety in an emergency offer is the devil's bargain? What if surrendering liberty does not lead to safety, but only more government? What if, since liberty is a personal birthright, you can surrender your own liberty, but you cannot your neighbor's? What if the government takes liberty, whether voluntarily surrendered or not? What if the theory of the Constitution is that the states voluntarily surrendered some of their sovereign powers to the federal government, So that it can address federal issues that are spelled out in the Constitution. What if the theory of state sovereignty is that the people in each state voluntarily surrendered some personal liberty in return for the protection of natural rights? What if the only liberty surrendered is the liberty to impair the natural rights of others? What if no rational person has surrendered to the government the liberty to walk the streets, to go to work, to operate and patronize lawful businesses, and to absolutely control one's own face? What if the Fifth Amendment commands that the government cannot take property rights without paying the owner their fair market value? What if the government and its friends in the media have scared the daylights out of hundreds of millions of Americans so that they will peacefully surrender their rights and livelihoods during the government's emergency? and thus bring about the government's version of safety? What if there are no emergency powers in the Constitution? What if, be, what if during the war between the states, the Supreme Court later ruled there was no emergency power to deny basic civil liberties? What if state legislatures are utterly without power to interfere in our daily choices in the name of emergency and safety? What if those same state legislatures cannot give to governors powers that they do not have? What if all the COVID-19 restrictions on personal autonomy directly defy the Constitution? This next question stinks. What if the government doesn't care? <laughs> what if millions who've lost personal autonomy don't care because they've accepted the devil's bargain that somehow voluntary servitude will bring them temporary health and safety? What if they've forgotten about the safety of their personal liberties? What if democracy and liberty can only coexist when the government is faithful to the Constitution? What if the history of the American government is its infidelity to the Constitution? What if liberty is taken or surrendered and is not returned? What will we do about it? Those are tough questions, but those are the kind of questions you and I should be willing to ask ourselves. You don't have to like the answers. But if you're a truth seeker, you got to be willing to ask those tough questions. I'll have a link to Judge Napolitano's article in the show notes, which you'll find at thebryanhideshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: How's that wrong think feeling? Is it making you nervous? Because done correctly, it will make you just a little bit nervous. And why not? I mean, come on, you're a little bit out of step with society. Somebody might notice. Hey, you seem to be questioning a lot of things. (laughs) Why don't you just embrace what's going on and get in line with the rest of us? Nah, there's no fun in that. Besides, somebody's got to stand up for what's right, and if not you, then who? So let's plow ahead. Let's, let's forge onward. I know a lot of people are talking about uh, the mass murder at Boulder's King Supers grocery store earlier this week. And, you know, I, I almost regret, I've spent uh, way too much time in my career on the radio talking about gun control, most specifically speaking against gun control to The point that I, I worry that I've become a, a one note symphony. But I got a couple articles here I want to share with you um, just because of their power to uh, inspire some independent thought. The first one is from Kent, McNanig- Kent rather. He is a regular contributor at everything voluntary.com. This is another one of those resources for wrong thinkers that I strongly recommend. Sign up for their emails. You're not going to regret it. Uh, Kent is just one of the many contributors, but uh, they they have some really innovative takes on things, very based in principle, not based in partisan red state versus blue state tug-of-war kind of stuff. It's not shouted bumper sticker slogans, but really genuinely inspiring, thoughtful commentary on what's going on around us. Here's what Kent McManigal has to say about mass murder at Boulder's King Supers. He says, it's hard to avoid falling into conspiratorial thinking when mass shootings happen any time the anti-gun bigots of government need them to happen. Like, do these evil losers get their marching orders directly or do they just know instinctively when to go hot to advance the anti-gun agenda? Now, he says, how much do you want to bet the Boulder King Supers was a designated slaughter zone? If anybody has seen uh, the... The, a photo of the, uh, he asks, has anybody seen a photo of the we don't care if you die sign by their door? In other words, I think they, they prohibit uh, customers from being armed. He says, some want to say that the cop being killed shows guns wouldn't save anyone, but an evil loser is naturally going to target the one person he knows for sure is armed first. Then he's free to kill uninterrupted. A universally armed population would have solved that problem before it even began. Now, he says, it sickens me that someone could murder that many people without being shot dead in the act by four or five bystanders. But this is the world anti-gun bigots and their legislation have worked so hard to create and perpetuate. As always, the problem was too few guns and the evil loser having the advantage. But the anti-gun bigots want to double down and make this the guaranteed default by legislation everywhere. You can't fail harder than that. They're literally siding with potential mass murderers, making it safer for them to commit evil. Now, he says, I've been part of more than one universally armed society. And he says an armed society is a polite and peaceful society, not as the anti-gun bigots fear one where everyone's afraid of everyone else. Maybe one where everyone respects the rights of everyone else for sure. One where people who might otherwise feel the need to violate others are now afraid to do so. Not a bad thing in any way. I agree, by the way. What he's saying here, people should be afraid. They should be terrified to violate the rights of others. Which is precisely why you're seeing politicians uh, pushing very, very hard for gun control at this moment. The only thing standing between us and them and a complete takeover on their part is the fact that the American people are armed. And if someone comes and shows up to violate their rights, and by the way, they have to do that in person, it should be risky for them. I don't say that because I think violence is a good thing. I'm saying this from the standpoint of you have to be capable of defending yourself. And if you don't believe me, look at the history of the 20th century. I can think of at least eight different genocides that took place during the 20th century. You want to know what every one of those genocides had in common? At some point, before the targeted population was being liquidated by government order, someone in government disarmed the targeted population by law. Every single time. So people who say well I've had gun control in you know the UK for a long time and no nobody there's committing genocide and that may be true. I'm not saying necessarily that gun control causes genocide but I am saying genocide cannot happen without first disarming those who are going to be liquidated. Make of that what you will but when you start looking at it through those uh, those uh, eyes it's pretty easy to see that to uh, what they call an evil assault rifle is actually looking a lot more like a life preserver and the kind of life preserver that you would be very foolish to turn loose of as the water's getting pretty choppy here lately. Kent McManagle says, the lesson here is that anytime anti-gun legislation is at the top of the agenda, don't go anywhere unarmed because a mass shooting is coming soon, maybe more than one. It probably won't happen in your presence, but no one can guarantee that. It can't happen here. Now, to me, is delusional thinking. So he says, be ready. Unlike the anti-gun bigots who blame guns, he says, I want you to be safe, prepared, and responsible. I don't treat you like a somewhat stupid, naughty child. He's really got away with words. Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I also wanted to share with you uh, the woke revolution's memo on mass shootings. This is from Alexander Riley. And he says, this is a memo in light of recent events for the immediate attention of all political and media leaders aligned with the woke revolution, which is to say, just about all of them. And Alexander Riley says, mass shootings like those that just took place in Atlanta and Boulder are a tragedy, of course, but they are also one of the best propaganda tools for the contemporary woke movement to advance the agenda. If framed and discussed properly, that is. Now, as you know, the woke revolution believes that no crisis, in other words, opportunity for propagandizing, should ever pass without harnessing it to our agenda. So the following guidelines produced by experts in woke thought and activism delineate the best way to talk about mass shootings. Now, tell me if any of this sounds familiar. When information on specifics is limited, the best practice is to blame easy access to guns pledging to curtail that access. Use the opportunity to blast the National Rifle Association and other groups that advocate for Second Amendment rights. Next, give editorial space to ideologues masquerading as scholars who can frame the American constitutional right to gun ownership as a public health crisis. Yeah, well, what isn't these days? Next, ignore inconvenient facts about gun ownership and violence in the U.S. The fact that mass shootings make up a very tiny fraction of the murders in this country every year... Does not advance the woke agenda, nor do the facts that the vast majority of crimes committed while in possession of a firearm were done so with illegally acquired guns, and that legally owned guns play a role in preventing a vast amount of crime every year. Summary, when in doubt, it's always the guns. The woke revolution believes there are too many guns in the hands of citizens, that is. Members of the cultural elite will, of course, need armed guards to keep themselves safe and citizen disarmament is a righteous and undisputable goal. Now, Alexander Riley says, when basic demographic information is known about the suspect, rigorously adhere to the following guidelines. If the suspect is a white male, especially if any information can be found on his social media accounts to indicate he is not fully devoted to the woke agenda, describe him as part of a general white and male supremacist terror threat. No further corroboration of this charge is ever needed. Even if nothing is known about motive, speculate vigorously that the motive must have been hate. Confidently talk about a neat, strong, causal relation between right-wing culture and rhetoric and the suspect's murderous acts. No argument to show causality is needed. In fact, any effort at careful demonstration of this complex point will just confuse and bore woke and woke sympathetic readers and listeners. So just aggressively claim it without argument over and over and over. Connect the suspect to Donald Trump, if at all possible, however tenuous the connection. In all situations of white male suspects killing non-white victims, allude to the general American culture of white supremacy, anti-blackness, and hatred of immigrants, and non-Christians as the obvious cause. Advocate for stringent restrictions on public expression of values and beliefs that can be connected to that general culture. Now, if the suspect is not a white male, but a member of any privileged minority victim group, in other words, black or BLM, Muslim, LGBTQ, Antifa, avoid making note of these demographic facts. Especially avoid any discussion of this if the suspect's name suggests his demographic status, in other words, ethnicity or race, religious affiliation, immigration status. If no firm information on the suspect's demographic status is available, confidently assert that he must have been an angry white man and refuse to back down on this claim unless it becomes wholly untenable in light of evidence. If there's any evidence that the suspect displayed characteristics that can be described as mental illness, focus determinedly on this. And of course, rely on allies in major media firms to eliminate or access limit access to information that might show the suspect's connection to privileged minority groups and or woke ideas, making it possible for victims to independently verify information we give them. The suspect's minority victim status can only ever be invoked in one way as an explanation and justification for his acts. This is a pretty good memo, even if it is kind of tongue-in-cheek. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com.
0: Check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: want to give a quick shout-out here to Monticello College. In fact, I would encourage you go to the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and get a feel for Monticello College for yourself. Their website is MonticelloCollege.org. I I try to have Dr. Shannon Brooks on here at least a couple times a month to talk a little bit about what they're doing. If you are looking for or examining the possibility of an education for our time, by which I mean a classical liberal arts education that um, helps the student become the best possible version of themselves, a clear-thinking, capable, productive member of society, this is a school you should give some serious attention to. And again, you'll find the link in the show notes along with my other sponsors. Something else you're going to find there is an opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. Just click on the subscribe link and it'll give you access to where every time a new episode drops, you will be notified. There's also a link there. If you find value in the articles that I share, the commentary that I share, or just just the general take on things that isn't based in red state, blue state, tug of war, consider becoming a monthly donor. Seriously, for what you'd spend at one trip at Starbucks, you can greatly help me keep the wolves away from the door and keep me focused on finding and disseminating the best possible content that I can find. And I thank you in advance for for being a supporter. So, I've been sharing this article by Alexander Riley, the Woke Revolution's memo on mass shootings. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar, but there are a couple of other things that he suggests. These are some of the basic guidelines that the Woke must follow when it comes to talking about mass shootings. One of the things he says is to emphasize the structural oppression which forced the suspect to become violent, then... Advocate for stringent restrictions on public expression of white supremacist values and beliefs. And by the way, have you noticed how uh, things that are considered white supremacist have been expanded into areas that uh, were extremely, not only harmless, but actually helpful to society? Things like, you know, having an intact, stable nuclear family. That used to be understood to be the best recipe for a person's chance for success in life. Uh, Not to say that all nuclear families are perfect. They're not. We all have challenges. But a child growing up in a two-parent household where both parents are actively a part of their life, where there is commitment, where there is fidelity, that is preferable to the you know, single parenthood option or broken home option. And look, I'm not condemning people who find themselves in that situation, just acknowledging that if there's an ideal, it's found in the one that historically you look at every civilization that has graced this planet, some variation of a man and a woman paired together for life and raising the offspring that only a man and a woman can create together. That's been the pattern whether it's an advanced culture, whether it's a primitive culture. This is part of what humanity has depended upon in order to, uh, you know, to keep the species going, to, to keep uh, humanity, you know, advancing. And it's only, you know, just within the last, well, I think it's been tried before, but within the last couple of decades, we've seen a lot of effort to reinvent the wheel. And the wheel looks pretty strange, to put it mildly. A couple more suggestions here from Alexander Riley. He says, In no case is it permissible to suggest a causal theory for the suspect's actions that parallels the logic outlined above for white suspects. It can never be the case that woke culture or rhetoric about how horrible a society America is for everyone who's not a straight white male contributed to the resentment of the suspect and thereby to his murderous acts. The best practice is to continue to claim that no such information about motives is available at this time, no matter how much such information there might be. Summary. White male suspect equals hate crime and clear causal effect of right-wing rhetoric. Non-white male approved victim population suspect equals motive unknown, perhaps mental illness, provoked by oppression. America is a hateful white supremacist country, rhetorical background, irrelevant. And he says, please attend to the guidelines outlined in this document at all times. The eyes of the woke revolution are upon you. Now, I don't want to sound flip, but I'm going to confess something to you. All the talk about gun control, whether it's from politicians or commentators or whatnot, it does not bother me. Well, Brian, what are you doing? Burying your head in the sand? Are you just trying to ignore reality? No, I'm just, I'm a guy who made the decision a long time ago that there are some places where there is no legitimacy. And whether it's government or whether it's a media personality or a pundit or just an advocate saying, hey, I don't know who you are, but I need to make it as hard as possible and as expensive as possible for you to own a gun because I don't trust you. My response is, that's nice, dear, and I will go on living my life. In other words, you write whatever words you want to write on paper. You pass whatever laws you want to pass. If you expect me to obey them, well, that's your problem. And I know I'm not alone in this regard. Look, I'm not a scofflaw in the sense that I don't go around willy-nilly violating the rights of others. At the same time, I'm a person who understands his rights well enough. I will not stand for mine to be violated either. So you might as well pass a law telling me, hey, please throw your youngest child off a cliff in the name of protecting the environment. And I will give it exactly as much credibility as I'll give whatever gun control, you know solution you're trying to come up with. It's illegitimate. That's not a call you get to make. You have to have my consent in order for such a thing to have effect on me. And you know what? I'm withholding my consent. In fact, I'm withdrawing my consent. So good luck with that. Would you like to stand there making frustrated noises or maybe find something productive to do with your life? All right. It's turning into a rant. I'm going to downshift and go back to something else here. We don't think a lot about money, and I'm not trying to start any rumors here, but have you noticed how prices are rising? We'll start with gas prices, but everything gets more expensive from there. And I'm thinking that a prudent individual may want to start pondering a little more deeply about monetary policy and how to protect yourself against the ravages of inflation. By the way, inflation is not merely rising prices. Inflation indicates prices are rising because the purchasing power of every single dollar or monetary unit in circulation is being diminished, watered down. How many trillions of dollars have been dumped into the economy, spent, so to speak, created out of thin air and, you know, put into the economy just in the last year? It's a lot. And it's not something that can be done without consequences. Now, there have been other countries, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, and others who've seen hyperinflation where, you know, breakfast will set you back uh, about $4 billion. Well, I think, I think that's what it was in Zimbabwe. Uh, anyway, you, it's, it's actually about $12 million. I think you need 4 billion, uh, for a $12 billion for a breakfast. That's a continental breakfast. Uh, be sure to keep about $4 billion set aside for a nice tip. That would be the neighborly thing to do. But I found an article here from uh, George Selgin. This is on alt-m.org on private gold mints. And in the couple of minutes I have left here, I just want to tickle your ear with the possibility of what if there were an alternative to the currencies that we are being forced to use, the debased currencies that are losing value, so every person who has, you know, dollars sitting in the bank, it purchases less and less each year because of inflation. This is what George Selgin has to say. Every hoary myth about the private market's unfitness to supply means of exchange has roots that trace back to the hoariest monetary platitude of all, namely the claim that governments alone, whether Republican or absolutist or otherwise, are fit to coin money. The commonplace uh, credendum dates from ancient times and was a staple of medieval and early modern monetary writings. Now, paradoxically enough, after stating the standard dogma, most of those writings go on to describe in lurid detail and vigorously condemn sovereigns' frequent and flagellant abuse of their coining privileges. Yet the myth survives, thanks to the belief that bad as some governments were, and often still are, at supplying their, gover- their citizens rather with decent coins, competing private firms would have been worse. But why speculate? Why not look for actual episodes of private coining and see just how bad it was? And he says, well, some years ago I did just that by looking at the private sector minting and issuance of silver and copper token coins during Great Great, Great Britain's Industrial Revolution. You know what? It was not only not bad, but pretty darn good and a damn sight better than coining done by Great Britain's Royal Mint. In his new CMFA working paper, The Private Mint in Economics, Evidence from American Gold Rushes, CMFA senior fellow Lawrence White does for private sector gold coining in the U.S., what I did for copper and silver coining in Great Britain. That is, he actually looks into how well it worked instead of just assuming that it couldn't work well at all. And White finds that while some private gold mints produced coins of subpar value, others produced coins of higher quality than those struck by the U.S. mint. And only the better private mint stayed in business. In other words, the outcome of private coining was the, like that of most industries that no economist worth his or her salt would wish to see nationalized. It's a great article, very thought-provoking. I have a link to it in the show notes, which you can check out at the com. Again, consider subscribing to the podcast. Tell a friend if you uh, if you feel so inclined, and please consider becoming a monthly supporter.